everybody, welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. So this is actually kind of 2.1 or 1.2 maybe. It'd be 1.2 with the tech guy sitting here. Palash Desai. What's funny is our outlook had not synced properly. And so Palash meets us here and he meets me, but I can't get a hold of Ben because he's completely off the grid doing a thing in the mountains, just doing some planning, yep. right? Just where he completely unplugs. And to be fair, <laughs> I had replied that I couldn't come maybe a month before. So, so. <laughs> let's just, let's just throw that so out. there was probably some human error mixed in with Outlook, with but nonetheless, Palash, so good to see you again. Thanks for having uh, me. So Palash has listened to more than one of these uh, in preparation, so he kind of knows where we're going with the first question, but he doesn't know the scenario. So the scenario is this. So one a, a strange and little-known fact about Palash is that he also is into improv comedy. Great photographer, too. So he and his wife, Anjali, is that right? That's right. Is that right? All right, great. They are traveling because they like to travel. But this time they're they're traveling to one of her pickleball tournaments while he's gonna be doing <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna be doing some improv comedy on the sideline. And <laughs> so anyway, you guys are on the way from the parking lot to the pickleball tournament conference or the uh, the stadium, and somebody sees you. And this is in some remote part of the world, probably. But they recognize you, and they are, they start talking about you, Palash, and not realizing that you can overhear everything that they're saying about you. What would you want somebody else to say about you? Uh, first of all, I want to say my wife's going to be elated that this is a pickleball scenario. <laughs> it's uh, the I think that uh, I, I've heard so many different responses of the different podcasts I've listened to, and it's all such a great variety of the responses. And to me, I think the most important thing would be, and this may sound a little trite, is that I just want to be known as a good guy, mm. you know, a good father, a good role model, good husband, um, a good son, good brother, good friend, uh, good boss. It's really important that people sort of think of me in general as a good person, more than any other professional or personal success I may or may not have had. Just say, hey, there's Palash, a good guy. And then I think the other thing that uh, when I thought about this for a while is, you know, I'd like people to think, of, well, here's Palash with an engineering background, business degree, worked in corporate America, and then said he wants to find his own path mm. and said, is it possible to combine both um, business and social entrepreneurship to create something more impactful for the community? And it would be, be, you know, be really important to me that people sort of recognize the fact that I'm very passionate about something I call purpose-driven capitalism, and and um, and yeah, that'd be something that hopefully they would say at least one of those two things. Isn't that interesting? We've had some other people in here like that. We certainly have, and I have an entire section of what I want us talking about that goes to a lot of what you you just mentioned. Wow! So before we get into it, I want to give a little bit of a background. Okay. So he's a founder as well as still the general manager and owner of the Organic Maids. That's right. And you also have almost 13 years of experience as a management consultant, including going into Walmart corporate headquarters, a Silicon Valley startup, and, and a plethora of others. So right. I want to go back a ways first. You went back to college, right? You went back to Cornell for your MBA after, right. after a gap. Explain what you were doing prior and then what led to 
the uh, what was the catalyst to go back to school for your MBA? So I, I graduated with a master's degree in engineering, and then you know, being of Asian or Indian descent, that was often the thing that you did back then in the '90s. You either went into into medicine or engineering or law, and um, I really enjoyed a lot of the stimulation that we got in the engineering world at the school. And then I got my dream job at Bell Labs, which you know that doesn't really exist as much anymore, but that was the research and development wing of AT and T. So it's a lot like getting a job at Google if you're if you're a uh, uh, computer science major. Mm-hmm. Loved it, had the greatest boss, but that was like 1999 and that was a dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. So I got caught with a dot-com fever mm-hmm. and I said, I want to go back to business school. I want to get my MBA. I want to go into management consulting and I want to become a dot-com millionaire. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to do. Best laid plans. And, um, <laughs> and so that was the catalyst really to go back to business school. A lot of people were going back to school. I had met my wife. She was at Harvard. I wanted to do this one program at, at, at uh, Cornell because because of a master's degree in engineering, they offered a accelerated one-year, 12-month intensive program for the MBA. So I, you know, it would minimize the amount of salary loss that I had. But uh, yeah, that, that was the whole catalyst of going back to school was to get back into, start a startup company in Silicon Valley at some point. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I just decided to jump right into the management consulting role right after. Yep. And so pretty quickly after uh, getting your MBA, you, you've got a lot of experience on the marketing side of business. That's right. What specifically led to that side? Because once you get your MBA, you could go a million different routes. What was it about marketing that was attractive for you? I never saw myself as a finance person, really, as a uh, investment banker. I liked the idea of marketing because it, so in an engineering role, you, you, your natural tendency is to develop things and build things. And so a combination of business and development is something called product management. And product management is you know a combination of marketing and um, operations and engineering. And so you'll see that you know subsequent when I went to Silicon Valley, most of the roles are of a product marketing manager role or product manager type of role that I had mm. for the next several years. And so that was the real catalyst that you want to build something then uh, the marketing role would be a good combination. And I thought at that point as well is that that's what you needed to, to build a, at the time at least I thought, that's what you would need to build a dot-com type business. Yep. So. Yeah, well, especially with your engineering background, right? When people think of engineers, it's not the same person that you think of when you think of a marketer. So for you to have that mind, and then also down the road get into management and operations and things like that, but it's a unique combination or blend of, of skill sets that not everybody can hold. I think a lot of it had to do with my boss at, at Bell Labs. He saw right away that I liked talking to people. And so he mm. put me in a customer and vendor facing role where I would be like in front of different vendors and different customers all the time talking. So there was a lot of, so it's not really marketing per se, but it has that social social yeah. aspect to it where you're gathering feedback and trying to translate that into a product. So. He saw at that, even at that point, that I had some some liking to that. And I wasn't like the classical, um, look, Bell Labs is such a heavy research and development mm-hmm. agency. It wasn't uncommon for people to walk backwards or walk with their eyes closed or walk with their shirts with their butts mismatched because they were so caught up in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't that type of an engineer, right? I wasn't that deep into what I was doing. I was more someone who understood technology, but also liked the more social aspect of, mm-hmm. of uh, or interpersonal aspect of of, uh, of corporate life. So you mentioned earlier, you wanted, the goal was I'm going to go get, go back, get my MBA and become this dot-com millionaire. 
Uh, as you get into working and into your career post MBA, how did how did that evolve and you get more specific into what you actually liked versus what you didn't like doing? Yeah, so it's actually a little bit more complicated story than that. I um, that's what we're here for. So, we're, we're so let me go back. So I'll just take a few minutes to explain what happened at Cornell. At uh, Cornell, I, they they have a very very strong leadership and management of uh, industrial labor relations a program that's separate from the MBA program. And what they do is they take that research and they apply it to the business school students and put you through some very rigorous leadership programming or pro mm. programs. So things like um, putting you under high stress mm. and videotaping how you react to people, having somebody watch you for an entire week and take notes on how you behave everywhere. Mm. Um, and then some of it was also just uh, a lot of paperwork in terms of your interests and your likes and dislikes and sending off paperwork to your bosses and your friends to get confidential feedback mm -hmm. about you so they give a holistic picture of you. One of the one of the things that out, uh, outputs of that is based on your personality, what type of job are you well suited for? Mm -hmm. So right, my goal is to become a dot-com millionaire. Mm -hmm. right. And my friends are getting investment banking. They're getting things like, oh, you're good at brand management. You'll be good at management consulting. Mine came back saying, You'll be very good and happy being a member of the clergy or a manager of a nonprofit. Really, hundred thousand dollar MBA. <laughs> True story. <Okay>. Wow. <laughs> Completely disregarded it. I thought it was. Mm. You know, these these tests can sometimes be very susceptible to your mood. Sure, and there was fair. a lot of bad news in the in the uh, bad uh, political news that was happening worldwide, and I and I was very feeling sure. really um, upset about this. So I thought that might have actually have influenced it. But I ignored it. Thick binder, still have that binder, and <laughs> went off to Silicon, or went off to management consulting. Lasted about a year, hated it. Mm. Went off to Silicon Valley, did a, a number of startups. I've done, start, I've done um, products that every cell phone on this desk or were sold worldwide has my technology to this day, or every television sold worldwide has technology that I created to this day. Wow. But every three years, kept switching jobs hating what I did. Really did not like it at all. And I was not happy at all. My final job was at a company called Tessera, which was now called Xperi, about to leave again after three years. And they said, well, we want to develop a semiconductor fab, which is like make the cameras, like on your cell phone, in Morocco, Africa. Mm. Are you interested in going there and helping us build this project? And what is this project? Why would you do it there, right? At all the places in the world. Right. They did a joint venture with the State Department. And what it was, was in these countries where there's a big disparity between economic disparity between the haves and the have nots, mm. all the educated class leaves. And when you have this much mm. poverty in an area, it's a breeding ground for disrupt, uh, um, unrest. Yeah. The idea was, can we get one company set up and prove that you can have a high tech company and attract more companies to invest there mm. and try to attract back the middle class from Europe or or the United States or Australia, where they wherever they went, mm -hmm. and and see whether we can get some you know get this bridge between the haves and the have-nots. So I did. I went there with my family there for two years. Hardest project ever done. Ninety-hour weeks killed me. Trying to do engineering in French was hard, mm. um, but it also was the coolest thing I ever did in my life. And I thought about it. Why am I so happy here versus anywhere else? And 90 hour weeks. And 90 hour weeks and missing out my kids. And then I found that binder. Mm -hmm. And I opened up that binder and I said, 
you need to do something that has more meaningful than making money. You need to have something that has some sort of impact socially. You need to have this sort of thing, right, in your life. Mm. And what, what were we doing there? We were doing things that had an impact at the countrywide or, or at, a, at a nationwide level. Mm -hmm. We had every single ambassador of every foreign country interested in what we were doing because they wanted to see, can I bring companies from my country over and, and, right. and, and invest here? So for me, that was the real turning point of my thought process of what I needed to do. And just fast forward, we had acquired a company. I've done a lot of M&A work with this company, and we acquired a company here in Charlotte. They moved me back here to run operations. Two weeks into it, I was miserable. <laughs> wow. Two weeks, I was miserable again. And six months later, they closed down their project, wanted me moving back to California, and I said, nah, I'm going to stay here. And then that's when I started exploring this whole aspect of purpose-driven capitalism, this idea that can I combine business, oh, the, the uniqueness of business, with the ideals of a of a nonprofit or an NGO and create a highly profitable business that has a lasting impact to the community. And that was my goal. And I thought, this is the craziest thing I thought I mm. had in my life, but let me see if I can make it work. And I told my wife, can I take a couple of years and do this? And she said, sure. And wow. that was 10 years to 11 years into it now. So not exactly the answer question you were asked. No, that's, that's great. A whole, that's the whole yep. background. So that was 11 years ago? About? So I bought a very, very tiny cleaning business in 2012 uh, with two people and about 10 or 15 okay. uh, like, uh, customers. And now it's, I don't know, 30, 35 people and, and five, 600 customers. But yeah, that was 2012, mid-2012, mid January 1st. Awesome. That seems like a life-changing realization. When you're over there, you're in this project, and you reflect enough to realize maybe I'm phenomenal at some of these other things that I'm doing, but I'm miserable doing right. it. Where, where do you go in that moment from there? You talked about, Hey, you get back the switch project, you get reminded, yes, I am miserable doing this other stuff. But, mm -hmm. but in that moment, that realization, whether it's a conversation with your wife or somebody else, where do you go when you have such a, a earth shattering realization? Yeah. I mean, I, I was lost really. I mean, for a while, I mean, I was like, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what what impact or what community impact I wanted to do. I didn't know what business I wanted to do. I didn't know like it was. Uh, mm. it, it, yeah, you don't. I didn't know where to go with it. You know, I was, it's actually a time in my in my life where you can feel completely lost. Mm. I mean, mm. there's a lot of that where you feel like you've always known. Okay, I'm going to go to engineering school. I'm going to go work for Bell Labs. I'm going to get my MBA. I'm going to go work for Silicon Valley. Right? Boom, boom, boom. And suddenly you're like shoot, just none of this stuff is mm. there anymore. And what do you do, right? And mm -hmm. I started working with a business broker. I said, this is what I wanted to do. And he was trying to find businesses for me to invest in or buy. Um, and we never, I didn't know what cleaning, I didn't know why I would even do a cleaning business, mm -hmm. right? That's where the organic maze is. But where I honed in was that when I came to Charlotte, the one thing I did notice immediately is that there's a huge disparity between the have and the have nots here. Mm -hmm. Social mobility is ranked 50th out of 50 of the big cities in, in the U.S., right? Charlotte is the worst for social mobility, which means if you're born poor, you're going to stay poor. Mm -hmm. So I asked myself, can I do something in that one area? That's one thing that came to my mind almost immediately. Can we resolve this economic or income inequality somewhere? Mm -hmm. um, and then... I still didn't know where I was going to go with that, right? So yes, okay, great. I have this idea of purpose-driven capitalism. Let's do that. 
how, right? Mm-hmm. And then my kids were, I have two daughters, and um, they were coming up with age where they were they're saying, you got to do something for women and minorities. You got to do something for women and minorities. Okay, okay, fine. Again, what do I do with that, mm-hmm. right? But it's, it's uh, so we started working with a business broker, and then he, a gentleman named Randy Mitchell, to, to this, this day I'm ever grateful. Um, Randy, and he was trying to sell me a franchise at the time, but he also helped me work through a lot of different things. And, and he said, you know, if you look at a cleaning business, you can hire people, and can you make it so that you can change their lives mm-hmm. um, economically while doing cleaning? Because they're, you're going to attract people who already are uh, earning a very, very low wage. Mm-hmm. Can you make a transformative effect on that? There was that, that was one idea, and the other idea was elder care. And, and I sort of lean my lean towards the cleaning area because it had one other thing about that I, was, I thought I was pretty good at, which is operations. I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. marketing operations role. So. so you've talked about and mentioned person-driven capitalism uh, a few times. I want to step back, and, and can, you, can you define that a little bit better? We've talked with a few people about the, uh, the B Lab, right, being B Corp or uh, corporations, mm-hmm. things like that. But in the timeline that you're talking about, having purpose and mission in the middle of a company was still relatively unknown. So you have this idea in your mind. How did you hone that down a little bit and, and define for the, the listeners, for those who don't know what purpose driven capitalism really is? So the way I define it, at least, it's. Um... I've done a couple of presentations and it says, you know, it's the creation of a business whose sole purpose is to address a particular social need, but it, it has to, the business has to be a profitable business so that it's sustainable. So I'm not saying it very clearly. It's a, it's to the development of a highly profitable, highly sustainable business, which addresses a particular social need. That's the definition of, of purpose-driven capitalism, but I hone it even more and I say, it's the addressing of that social need that becomes your competitive advantage. So if I were to say, and I haven't told you exactly what mine is here, but if it was, if I were to get rid of my, uh, by that social need, if I decided to abandon that, I would be no better than any other cleaning company out there in the market. And so it becomes a seminal point in the, in the operation of your business that you are making this, whatever social need you wanted to address, you're making that uh, part and parcel of your, of your business. So that's how I define purpose-driven capitalism. I two questions from that. Uh, the first one is why go that route instead of the nonprofit route? Sure. So in the nonprofit world is, I love nonprofits. By the way, you know I think they're wonderful and they 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 address some serious issues. Couple of things about nonprofits. How many times have you been to a nonprofit fundraiser? I've been to a bunch. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, they're always at the, um, they're always going to be need uh, at the past of, uh, or are going to be needing donations mm-hmm. and donations can dry up for a couple of reasons, economic downturns mm-hmm. or just donor fatigue. I mean, how many different fundraisers can a person go yeah. to, right? And it takes, it tends to be the same sort of group of people that like to go to these fundraisers and, and, and give, you know, you tend to see the same people oftentimes the same in these fundraisers. So it's only a certain pool of money that you can address from that. It's also the fact that, you know, because, because nonprofits are, uh, beholden to donations, they are also sometimes, um, restricted to how they can operate. Mm-hmm. The donors might say, well, I'm not happy that you're doing it this way versus that way. When you're a profit driven company, 
you call your own shots in terms mm-hmm. of how you want to run it. You also are not at the subject of any drawing up of donations. And you can ask the same question, why not go work for a government agency, right? Because the government agencies yeah. do that too, right? But then government agencies are subject to being woefully underfunded. Mm-hmm. And then depending on who's been elected, they could they can have their mandate completely changed every few years, right? So mm-hmm. my view is that by having this profit uh, or this, this highly profitable, sustainable business, A, we can make a more of an uh, impact, and B, I can attract top talent. Mm-hmm. Because if I wanted to say I want to pull you, Gary, out of what you're doing right now, you never would, but if I wanted to, I can't say, oh, but by the way, I'm going to do it and pay you $40,000 a year. And right. you have financial commitments. Right. But if I say I can make it into equivalent to the, what you're earning right now, you might say, hmm, that might be something that we can think about doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm one person. I had packed about 30 people in my company. We can get a thousand people to do this. Yeah, that's thirty thousand people in the in, in Charlotte alone, and the, every single one of those thousand business owners has financial commitment. So you have to make it profitable for in order for them to do that. Yeah. And and we've seen in not just hiring but also the longevity of employees staying uh, places. If a company has a mission or a vision that the employee lines up with, yep, they'll sacrifice finances to stay with that company or to come yeah. join that company. Right. Yeah. So, and that leads kind of the second part of, of what you were talking about. I'm curious about, you talked about how this is not restrictive for you, but if anything, it's an advantage compared to your competitors. Right. So can you talk a little bit more sure. about that? Sure. Um, so the way, what, what my goal was is to take employees that was that were earning, say, about $18,000 a year, and I said, I want to get them to $40,000 a year. That was my original Goal, right? And so, then a cleaning cup has huge. Right now, we're somewhere in the fifty to sixty thousand dollar range that we pay them, which is, by the way, That's higher awesome. than than, than right. most college graduates, right? Um, there's a couple of things that happen with that. Number one is the employees have a tendency to want to stay, just because their mm-hmm. lifestyles become accustomed to the having that. And plus, they they uh, are able to meet their financial goals. Yeah. But when I want to hire managers. The single biggest reason why a manager comes to me and says, I want to work for you is because I believe that we're making a, a visible change to the um, to the employees, yeah. right? So we've had very good luck about our, our turnover has been very, very stable. And our, um, uh, our, com- our customers tend to like the fact that they have the same cleaner every single mm-hmm. time. So we, mm-hmm. our business tends to grow. Does that answer your question? It, it does, but it, I want to keep going. You talked a lot about how it helps with the people internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen a competitive advantage externally also when you're marketing or when you're trying to get new customers for that that business as well? Or is the bigger difference internal? So it, it it's certainly if I share this vision with a customer, they want to be part of it. I'm thinking from my perspective, if I'm between a few different companies and one has this purpose and the others don't, I'm 100% giving my money to that company. You would think so, and I would think so too. And about those who want to listen, who are not in a rush, because this takes a while to explain, mm-hmm. they want to get on board. But there are some people who just say, I want the cheapest price. Okay, well, we're not the right company sure. for you. Yeah. There are going to be people who say, I don't care about this. I just need this to be happening. Mm-hmm. Okay, we may not be the right company for you. But certainly those who actually do listen um, are, are intrigued buy it. And here's the other competitive advantage that we have here. We are paying two to three times what our comp- competition pays. 
there was a huge run up in labor costs in the last year. Mm -hmm. Everyone's except for mine because mine was already high. Yeah. And so I didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, eroding my margins because yeah. I already have it built into well, me. You were so far ahead of the curve right. as it was. So that was that was the main competitive advantage for me is that my staff had was not impacted at all by this labor uh, or this run up in labor costs. So um, I've been dominating the, the question, so I'm sorry. Right, Aaron, I, but, I'm taking on it's baby. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'll, I'll ask one more and then I'll, I'll quiet down a little bit. Um, I want to go back to the management consulting that you do, right? You've gone into a wide range of, of different companies. What are some of the lessons that you learned in there that you then were able to apply to organic maids? Yeah. Some very serious uh, ones. Um, I can give you a couple of minutes. I'll give you another yeah. example. Yeah. It goes a little, it's a little, it's a little, uh, intense. So 2003, I joined this lighting company where we're, um, that, uh, that I was working for. And, um, I was just married for about a year and a half and we had just bought our house in Silicon Valley, which is quite an achievement but for us back then, at least uh, I started this new job and my wife started a new job and we were just rocking it. We were killing it at the, at these new college, bringing new management processes, I was bringing new marketing processes. Uh, I was releasing a new product to change the way televisions were made to Sony. I mean, the, all the LED TVs that you see now is technology that I know my team created. Mm -hmm. um, and we just got, we discovered also that my wife was pregnant, expecting our first child. Mm -hmm. So everything was just humming along. And then September of 2003, our world started to collapse. Uh, my wife got very sick from the pregnancy and she was hospitalized. She had preeclampsia and we had to do an emergency C-section to prevent my wife from stroking out. Mm. Baby was born 10 weeks premature. Um, she lived in the NICU for four years, sorry, it's for four months. Okay. I'm sorry, four weeks. Came home with us for two, two weeks. And during this time I'm launching this new product and I'm just being able to think about, I'm a superstar being able to manage this new baby, my wife being sick and launching these new products. And then I get a call and the baby stopped breathing mm. and she passed away, you know, a couple months later, a couple hours later. And that was probably when my world kind of collapsed mm. on me. And the company was, I guess, accepting for me for like a first, so that was November 14th. I'd say, let's just say till January 1st, you know, they were, they were sort of accepting of me being, you know, up and down, but then they gave me the toughest new project, flagship project to, to run, which was to install this, these on your cell phones here. Um, the, you, we take it for granted that you have a flash on there to take a picture with it, but that's actually a very complicated thing to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, we were the only company that was trying to do it. And we led that effort. Um, for a year, it was one of the most grueling projects to release this product that now generated probably over a billion dollars. And the company said to me, huh, I'm glad that you, to release this project or this product, but we didn't like the way you handled yourself during this past year. And we feel that you were just a little too depressed for the rest of the company. Yeah. And I tried to say to them, when I lost a child, I'm about to make you over a billion dollars. You would actually want to think that maybe just maybe, all right the way things get done 
is not soldier concern, but the fact that it got done. I didn't break any like any policies or anything. It's just I, it was I was doing things more by the seat of my pants at that time because I was trying to manage so many different things. And so I learned from there. You know, there's there's this underlying theme in my life on compassion that I talk a lot about uh, with my friends. And there's this lack of compassion that people showed there. And I realized at that point that under no circumstances would I ever, ever want to treat somebody like that. It's okay if somebody says, if you say to someone, look, you're not functioning and I can't afford to keep you like this. How do we make this right? How do we mm -hmm. fix it? That's an okay thing to say, right? If you have to let somebody go, let them go with, with dignity. But to you sort of say some of that, oh, well, thank you for, for all this, but you know, you kind of like, you're, we're not happy with the way, with things, the way things are going. It's like, seriously, guys, this is not something that right. you want to, and I don't think it was really my boss that was driving this. I think it was my boss's boss that was forcing him to say things like that. And so it was, it, it, it was, I realized at that point that, and I know this, you know, from Cornell, they say never, ever, um, undercut your employees or never sell out your employees because they will not ever support you again. And guess what? I was out of there within a few months, right? Yeah. Until I found a new job. And then my new job, if anything, if any one of my employees did something wrong and the upper management ever wanted to talk to them, I said, absolutely not. You will talk to me and I will yell at them for you, but I will, you will not going to talk to my employees. I need to protect them all the time from that. Mm -hmm. And even now, cleaners are, have a lot of, a lot of issues. By the nature of it, to be a good cleaner almost necessarily means you have high anxiety. Mm. The two of those go very well together. And you have to manage their anxiety with compassion and not say, okay, you're not, I get it. You're getting freaked out here. Okay, we've had this before. Take a breath. It's going to be fine. And we keep on working with it. We don't say, I'm sorry, you know, you're, you're too anxious. Thank you for the thousands of dollars you created in business for me the last year, but you're out of here. Mm. I mean, we really try to work with them. Um, and we work with them. We try to say, okay, well, you're now in an abusive relationship. Great. We're going to give you, not great that you're in an abusive relationship, great. We have a path out. Good, good clarification. Thank you, Swin. Uh, <laughs> I'm also masterful putting my foot right now. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> it's, um, but here's a path out for you, right? Just because you're in this situation doesn't mean we're not going to be there to help you do that. And we give them that path out to do that. We support them in every single way possible until it's not possible to support them anymore. Mm -hmm. And then, and we see by doing that, by showing that level of compassion that we're able to get very, uh, loyal staff. I mean, I just had one cleaner that left me last month, but after six and a half years of working for us, which is unheard of in this industry, right? Mm -hmm. To end something to last that long in a backbreaking, grueling type of, of, of a profession. So I think that sort of thing that that this this notion of what, how my experiences at in Silicon Valley have shown me that, that for me it's just like I will never ever you know treat somebody who's going through a rough time with any anything but the utmost dignity and 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 compassion. So here's what I love about that lesson: it's you're applying humanity to business, and the business is thriving because of it. Right? You're not sacrificing the business to be to treat them like human beings. It's the other way around. Right. Uh, but it's leading with the empathy and the humanity first. It's not a ploy to have a better business. This is who you are at the core, which I think is unbelievable. But I also hope that some of the listeners, if they're afraid of doing that, mm -hmm. can hear this story and begin to apply that, that humanity or empathy to their businesses a little bit more. 
I think that, you know, when we, we approach any problem with compassion, it doesn't matter whether it's business or politics or your spouse or your kids, whatever. When you take a holistic view, then there are new solutions that can emerge. All right. And this is the reason why I came up with Purpose Driven Capitalism, because I said, well, let me see, mm-hmm. how can I be, understand what they're going through and can we come up with a solution that works for them? And one of the things about paying your employees with dignity and, and treating with dignity, our profit margins are 50% higher than my competitions. And I know this because we, we, we've actually benchmarked it. And so it is not just good for being a good person. It actually makes good business sense mm-hmm. for us. I mean, we've proven that. That was what I was trying to set, set out to prove, is it possible to do this, these things simultaneously? I had no idea. They don't teach you this in business school. Right. I mean, absolutely don't teach you this in business school. And I've never seen an example of it. You see a lot of companies talk a good game, but do they really embody yes. it? And that's a, that's, a, that's a hard thing to, to really measure until you do it yourself. So I'm going to jump in because, man, you, you're just, my dash light is lighting up since you <laughs> punched all my buttons. It's so funny. I mean, you are on this podcast for a reason beyond just Cherie DeMeo right. introducing us. I'm so, Cherie, thank you. She's wonderful. She is. She is just awesome. But when Ben asked me about four and a half years ago, hey, it was his idea to start this podcast. Okay. And I said, I'd love to do it. Two things. We call it anything but typical. Why is that? Because we're all anything but typical. Right. Our thumbprints prove it. Secondly, I was like, I want to focus on humble, accomplished, local entrepreneurs in particular because in my heart, I've worked for some really good ones and for some really bad ones. And they're ripple makers on both sides. Right. Destructive ripple makers, the bad ones. Positive ripple makers, the good ones. Right. And it took me a long time to figure out, oh, wow, you, you can actually be a capitalist and not be a greedy son of a gun where you are actually driven to have more impact for more people, not just, you know, get all you can, can all you get and sit on the can. Right. I I don't believe in that at all. Um, But man, like, so I'm thinking about Mike Reimels, who's been on here. So he is the largest dental practice in the state of North Carolina, big client. He started with three, very bright, but he has this, like, he is very intentional on purpose. He's very intentional about what he does. And he has set the benchmark in his entire industry for how to run a multi-site dental practice. And he's got 45 entities, I think. Wow. I mean, it's even more than that now. But And humble, 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 super accomplished like you, you know, very bright. And I'm like, man, yeah, those are, those are the stories that we want to keep perpetuating here. And, you know, thank you for sharing about September 2003 and how difficult 2003 and 04. I mean, first of all, I'm really sorry for your loss. I can't even imagine. Um, And we've had others on here. I'm thinking of Russell Huntley, uh, you know, uh, had a daughter uh, die, I think, in their swimming pool. Yeah, and then Mike Metcalf's story. Mike been Metcalf, a few. yeah, there have been a number. And, um, you know, I can't even imagine. But I want to say, 
good friend said, out of our greatest difficulties and pain often emerges our greatest blessing to other people. And I'm, and I'm listening to that, and I'm like, man, you are paying attention. You're using those hard things. And isn't it interesting? You think like, okay, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. I'm, this is what I want to do. Silicon Valley. All right, I'm chasing this thing, I'm chasing it, and, and yet I'm kind of glad that you did because we have to sometimes see that, that at the top of the ladder, there's nothing up there. <laughs> no. Well, right, or, or at least you, this is something you don't want to do. Yes. Like, yes. Know what you don't want. It's, 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 it's just as important as knowing what you do want to do, right? So... I think that that's uh, that that's probably my biggest takeaway from from that whole experience. Yeah. The only the only caveat to one of the things you said of you can you can be a capitalist and not be greedy, and it's a part of of an issue that I know people are talking about is the if you're a publicly traded company that can't be true, right? That's Your only thing is to maximize profits. People, mission, purpose, all of that has to get thrown out because you have this fiduciary standard, whereas the privately held companies are the ones that can have that deep impact for their people, for their communities, for whatever cause that they're lined up with. And, and I think that's a big difference that, that not a lot of people talk about. Not enough anyway. And that's all we work with on this that's it. podcast. The one exception, uh, Dave Zerfoss. So he took uh, Husqvarna from a hundred million to a billion, mm-hmm. but he's extremely purpose-driven. I mean, he, he defied all the, cause he, he ran Husqvarna in the same way, which, like, he's the only guy that I can think of, well, certainly that we've had, but, you know, very few, not all of them, but very few have been able to have the autonomy. I mean, he had the results to keep Wall Street at bay. Right. Yeah, but he had to do it despite, right, instead of doing yes. it, whereas you're you're rowing in the same direction as your purpose, right? right? The business is behind it. And Dave's story and, and uh, some of the others where they can have an impact despite being in a publicly traded company, that's the word, right? It's despite. Yeah, we see, we see that a lot, though. We, uh, one of the things I'm a big believer is that businesses can affect social change better than governments can. Now, you and I are old enough to remember when people used to smoke on airplanes. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And it was a couple of small airlines, but then Northwest Airlines was the one who says, we're banning smoking on all domestic airlines. And that was a big shocker to everybody. And yet suddenly within a couple of months, everyone's following suit. And then the U.S. laws changed. Then international flights changed a few years later to ban smoking. So I actually think that Mm -hmm. companies can, if they want to, they have the leadership that even if they're publicly traded can make. uh, And we see sometimes when when companies make uh, choices that are, that they take a stand and they get beaten in the market pretty badly. Mm-hmm. A couple of things that happened the last few months in that in that area. So mm-hmm. we we see that the opposite effect, and you know CEOs get fired for that. But you know it depends on whether you believe in what you stand for yeah. too. Um, I want to ask one more tactical thing around the the purpose uh, driven capitalism. What and then I want to pose something to you, Gary, as well. The listeners who are relating to how you're talking want to be that type of leader. Mm-hmm. What are these first steps that they can be doing in their company to begin becoming more purpose-driven instead of just a profit-driven company? Mm. Wow. Um, 
And if you want, I can make Gary go first. But um, <laughs> we're both no, shaking. We're both shaking your heads. Right? I, I want to see it. Well, a little and, and Gary, the I'll, I'll buy you a few more seconds, Gary. The reason I want to pose it to you is because you've gone in and been CEO coaches multiple times, right? And and you're taking people through these processes of figuring out what their vision is, where they want to go. But most of them are not talking about the purpose they want to live they're talking about what they want the company to end up doing yeah that's so so i'm curious from a coaching standpoint also what what your thoughts are around that of how they can start integrating this into the business i'll deal with that after palash perfect (laughs) so i I think uh, number one you have to know what you're passionate about what social issue you really want to address i've chosen uh, income inequality but there's tons and tons and tons of different social uh, issues that need to be addressed in this in this in the city let's just keep it the city and I guess the question becomes at that point is, um, is it possible to fold your business model? So let me blame back. It's very easy to start being purpose-driven when you start the company in that way. It's really hard to do it once you've established your processes yeah. and established your company culture and established your goals and say, oh, by the way, I want to do this. People can't revert back and say, okay, I'm going to pay my clears fifty to $60,000 a year. They can't do it. Their whole cost structure is completely not set up to do that. Yeah. Um, and so the so it's, it's much easier to start off with that purpose in mind versus, versus uh, trying to change your current company. But that being said, there, there, you know, there are plenty of things you can do is that pick, pick a topic that you want to, uh, to, to address and then just start folding that in. It's very easy. You know, one one way you can do says, okay, for every like Tacos for Life is a company that does this, right? They for every meal you buy, they donate a meal somewhere in the third country. It's a third world a developing nation, right? That's that's their business. And then, and you need those also. That's right. Um, you could always take ten percent of your earnings and donate that, and that's a very easy way of of getting into it, right? But to fold it into your business practice, and so it becomes a, a part and parcel of your business, that may take some some doing because you have to really change around your cost structure. You need to change around your business, or your your marketing. You need to change around the the processes you have. Like let's say you want to address, um, like Biddy and Bose does this, right? They have a lot of uh, a lot of their 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 servers in their in their cafes are people with um, I believe it's autism. And so, you know, you can start saying, okay, well, if I have a strong belief in autism, how do I start hiring people that are, uh, are artistic? Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's, it, it starts with saying, I want to do this and then please help reach out to reach mm-hmm. out to people and figure, help them figure it out. Like, for example, I had reached out to Randy Mitchell and said, I don't know what I want to do. You know, help me focus this, right? Mm-hmm. I, I know I kind of want to go with this direction, but, and, and, and so... For example, Gary, you could say, well, okay, so you want to help whatever, whatever social issue, let's start with baby steps and then let's see how we can figure out a way to get it in more and more part parcel more business, I think. It's, don't, it's not as crisp as I would like it to be the answer, but it's... No, it's really good, though. It is. Um, yeah, I love your examples. You know, I mean, Tom's Shoes kind of pioneered. That was part of their thing, right? And then it became kind of easy. Oh, and... Quite frankly, their shoes aren't that good. I mean, I don't know. Well, not only that, but as soon as he, uh, uh, what's his name? Blake Mikowski. As soon as he got out of it, uh, sold, they immediately went away from the buy one, give one. Right. So they don't even do that anymore. Oh, wow. Yeah. But the founder, Blake Mikowski, that was 
the whole way that he was able to grow the business to the extent that he did. And a lot of stuff that you talked about too, it, it resonated with people. People were more willing to buy that shoe than the shoe right next to it because right. there's yeah. something else behind it. I think people want to yeah. feel that they're making a contribution. Yeah. You know, and, and so either you're the leader doing it, like leading the company, or you're the customer participating in it. I think they're both equally important. So, you know, I think like I love your tacos for life. Go and try them. I mean, they are really good. Bella Tuna. Yep. Uh, so she's been on here. She was like the first B Corp, I think. I think she was Charlotte. Yeah. Um, Trilane Global, Gloria Nealon, also on this podcast. She's in Los Angeles, one of the few outside, but also very purpose-driven, but they got to do it on the front end. Uh, you know, I think about Jim Noble with King's Kitchen and all the, like, Noble Smoke, all that. Like, he's doing a lot. I think about Casey Crawford. Casey, you haven't been on here yet. I'm gonna. I'm still after you, uh, but Casey Crawford is like a ripple maker in this city. I mean, and like people have no idea. Like I love that, but I think you brought up a great point, which is like, well, it's much easier if you're starting out that way. I've got an example though of another guy that's been on here, Philip Lanier, and because he came to me four years before, well. Uh, this was five years ago now because he's been out almost a year. He sold his company, but burned out. Almost had 100 employees, so it's a decent-sized company. But just, like, so burned out, and he turned down millions of dollars to sell his company. And we got into, like, why? And I said, well, why didn't you take the money? And he said, well, I was afraid my culture was changed. I said, of course it's gotta change. It's not you. You know, wh what about your culture? Well, I pay more people better. I give them benefits that nobody else had, a number of things. I love my people. And I'm like, well, yeah, anybody buying you is gonna look at that and they're gonna drop that money right to the bottom line and go, well, we'll be parity with everybody else, but you know, we're gonna pocket that. Like, what's, why are you looking? Well, he was just, like too many roads were leading to him. So this was a, a company where he had built it. He had actually built it twice because they lost everything or, during the recession in 08. And so, but he had the humility, like what you had with Randy, which is like, I need some help. You need somebody outside the jar to help you read the label, right? right. So uh, that's what we did. And we... He, they had never, like, he was operating in high values, but nobody knew what they were. Yep. He hadn't articulated them yet. He hadn't articulated purpose and really thought about it. And it still comes comes back to Simon Sinek, you know, know your why, right? So we, we walked him through even a two-day session early on, like when we first started with that coaching uh relationship that lasted four years until he sold for five times what he had turned down um and now he kind of regrets it i think because he misses his team right it was never about the money he'd all he was already debt free you know it was never about the money um and so he's learned some additional lessons there too but they got clarity and so guess what you're right. There were some systems and there were some people that had changed that no longer fit. Cause I'm like, 
these core values, you're going to hire and fire based on them. Like, and the litmus test is, and we've had a number of people that we know where when they got serious about that and they had existing companies, in two cases that I know, the, the irony is in both cases, they had a caustic person that had 60%, and in both cases, it was still 60%. They controlled 60% of the company because they were rainmakers. They were allowing it to happen because they were afraid, oh gosh, if we let them go, then the good people are gonna be impacted because they may not have jobs, so they just put up with it, put up with it until they finally did it, and in both cases, they found out like the team rallied they got a hit initially, but then they rallied and soared past, which was really interesting to me. So, you know, for anybody listening, if you're saying, well, yeah, but I, I can't really afford to start all over. I've got this inertia. I've got this thing moving. You can, you can define and say from henceforth, this is where we're going to go. And it may not be just in one fell swoop where you, boom, you know, it's all happening but it can be incrementally and and your team will sift out and and align which i think is really fascinating and back in you know our mergers and acquisitions days and all those rockamsockam.com days nobody was paying attention to culture they were just yeah. they were paying attention to the numbers looking at efficiencies all that and i'm like not even that just revenue they yeah. they, they didn't care about profit right well, I especially was on, in the dot-com. <laughs> nobody cared about profit, right? So, yeah, especially then. Yeah, you're right. They, you know, they, their business professors used to call it EBE, earnings before expenses, right? It's just basically that's all they cared about was that. <laughs> EBE is a great way of just saying top line. Exactly. Right. right. It's, we may have talked about this, but this is worth talking about. It, it, it's I, I didn't mention this in, in the book, I don't think. Maybe I did, but... Um, we put a million bucks in the Silicon Valley company. It was actually San Francisco competitor when I was at bizjournals.com. $40 million burn rate. They were blowing through 40 million and not even a million top line. Like, what? And, and then they sold for $225 million. Mm -hmm. Like, I came back and talked to Ray Shaw, my chairman. I'm like, Ray, I feel like the world's upside down because, you know, Pets.com was spending bazillions of dollars on a sock puppet on Super Bowl ads and losing their shirt. And, and I'm like, but, and I started wondering, like, are we dinosaurs because we're actually running a conservatively less, have more profit than we have expenses? <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I seriously thought we were the bozos. Yeah. How dare you run a fiscally responsible company? What? <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, uh, yeah, and then his journals is still there. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so as we get to the end of this, I want to pivot a little bit to you as an individual. Because in your first answer, you talked about wanting to be known as, as being a good person. But then as you continued on, you could tell that it wasn't just in the business sense, right? It was business, personal, it was that blend. So what are habits that you put in your life to make sure that you're prioritizing the things that are most important to you outside of the company? Oh, I've worked really hard to not be involved in my company a lot. You know, I try to get to a point where I'm not needed to work a lot. And right now I have two daughters, one's in college, one's junior, but you know, there was COVID and things that we had to work through them. 
the habits that I really to have is I don't let my business right now, at least now, get in the way of the two most important things in my life right now with my, my two daughters and then, of course, my wife. Um, it's it's not really just a habit. It's just like, you know, you just don't feel like you want to do anything besides that. I have aging an aging father and aging in-laws, and, you know, the, those guys are not, those guys are now just starting to take a little bit more priority. So it's, it's quite easy when you have family around to say, okay, everything else becomes secondary. So it's not like we have a uh, necessarily a hardcore habit that I put into place. One thing I do try to contemplate a lot on is this notion of compassion, which I think I've mentioned a couple of times during yeah. this thing. It's a big part of Eastern philosophy. Um, and it, it that's one thing I try to put in my life in every single aspect that I look at. So somebody can, you could come to me with the the most, the thing I would think it was the most insane political position that I would that I could ever imagine, but I would still approach it. Well, where are we really going with this, right? What is it? Mm-hmm. That, why is it that Ben is feeling this way? What's what's going on? Let's, let me take the time to get to know you, right? Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the interesting thing about the notion of compassion is that when I was reading your book, Gary, you know, I was thinking that there's, I think there are three weapons, or maybe I'm consolidating of having three points into, into two weapons. But one was, you know, know that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't compete with others. And serve your others than more than yourself. And yeah. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not focused more on serving than how they perceive you. In my view, when I read those, I was reading it by a fire outside. I said, "These are all compassions." Yeah, and that's how I interpreted it. They, they happen. They truly are. But you're mostly about compassion to yourself, right? In many cases, but it's really important to me because I think that's one habit. If I can ever instill one thing in my kids, is just approach everything with compassion because right now the world is mm-hmm. in desperate need of healing and love and you know and I, I'm, I know I'm starting very hippie-ish but it's just something that you get to my age you're like what really matters mm-hmm. and is that yeah the compassion for yourself is something that's easily overlooked too and oh, it, yeah. it came up in uh I had a vestige meeting this morning right before this and one of the people in there said it's very easy for me to sacrifice myself for mm-hmm. my kids for my spouse for my customers for my employees I never put the oxygen mask on myself first. Mm-hmm. It's always external. So being able to do both makes you a better human being, and then you can probably pour even more into the other people. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's right. That's a great book, by the way. Your ox- ox- oxygen mask first. But on, I think just Google it or go to Amazon. Your oxygen mask first is probably like put on your oxygen mask first or something. Yeah. But it's a good That's one. book. It's just yeah. one line. It's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Oh, right. wow. Just take care of yourself. You would like that because it's a short read. You pay a I, lot of... <laughs> I, love, I told you this. I loved your book because every time... I read it on Kindle, right? I wasn't ready, reading so I had no idea how thick the book was. Right. And I, I, every time I kept hitting the next button, the, the percentage kept on going by up by 1%, 2%. <laughs> yeah. How short is this book? <laughs> Correct. So. Yeah, it was concise. It was perfect. Yeah, was so I want to end on this one before we, we tell people where to go to find you. Um, what's final lessons that you've learned or thoughts that you have or philosophies you will live by, whatever, that you want to share with the listeners before we sign off? Mm, oh, wow. Um, I think it's really important to, to... I've always struggled with, even when I'm doing this business, I'm very passionate about this business, right? I always say, well, wasn't I meant to be an engineer? Mm. Wasn't I meant to be in Silicon Valley? Wasn't I meant to still be building? Mm. And this, I think that 
Again, going back to your book, Gary, is the one thing I would say is get out of this rat race of comparing yourself to anybody mm -hmm. else. I mean, it's such a losing battle. And, yeah. it's, and particularly as an Asian, as in India, we do this incredible amounts of, we, we were born with this type of, it's in our DNA to compare ourselves to everybody else. Yes. And it is toxic. So if, I, if you know, if there's one piece of advice I could give anybody, just get, if you're into business, just do your own thing and, and be true to yourself and forget about what, what other people are doing. You know, as long as you're not, you know, it, it, within reason, of course, but you know, forget about how well other people are doing, you yeah. know, and, and, and I think you'll, that's a, more of a key to happiness than, uh, than building a solid, you know, $10 mm. billion dollar business. Well, that where can people go to either reach out to you, follow you, anything like that? Where we, our, our website's a big one, the um, www.theorganicmaids, that's plural.com, or uh, we're on all the social medias, the organic maids, you know, from Facebook to uh, Instagram. Um, love to have, just have a conversation with anybody too. You know, oftentimes I end up going to people's houses and they don't even take our services, but we've been talking for an hour and a half because I just like talking to people. So. Yeah. I love your background. I love the fact that nothing with your background has been wasted. Think about that. Your engineering protocol, like your thought process, the creativity of the, like the, the marketing part, you know, the social aspect. I mean, Cornell actually you could have said, man, what an expensive way to go. But, but seriously, it's probably worth it. May have saved your life, you know. Right. Um, and, and what you're referencing is, and it's it ties back to the name of this podcast. It's weapon number six: celebrate the anything but typical in yourself and others. Right. Versus comparing, oh gosh, I need to have that, or I sh I'm not that. Y you're not that by design. You're right. You are you by design, and sometimes it's an exploration of figuring out who that is. But your story is just really what a great and rich story so oh, i appreciate your time for allowing me to share it oh yeah it's really good thank you thank you so much